Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. This week, we focus on two people who are studies in dignity in the face of state repression. Jack Mazurek was arrested in Atlanta yesterday and charged with arson, allegations stemming from an attack on police motorcycles tied to the movement against Cop City. He's standing strong despite the serious charges against him as people around the country mobilize in his defense. Leon Benson, who we'll hear from later on in the episode, survived decades in Indiana prisons, organizing against the guards and admins despite terrifying repression, and emerged unbroken and exonerated a year ago. This is the second part of our most recent conversation with Leon. As for Jack, on Thursday morning, law enforcement officers from a joint task force that included the Atlanta Police Department, FBI, GBI, and ATF executed one arrest warrant and three search warrants on two homes in the Lakewood Heights area and one in the Starlight Heights neighborhood that police say are associated with the Stop Cop City movement. At a press conference, the Atlanta police chief said the search warrants were for evidence related to a series of arson and vandalism attacks that took place over the last few months. The arrest warrant was for an arson against police motorcycles that took place in July at an APD facility at 180 Southside Industrial Parkway. And the police chief also said he anticipated additional arrests related to the acts of arson in the coming weeks. A second individual was taken from one of the three homes and detained for several hours at police headquarters. The Atlanta Community Press Collective obtained a copy of one of the search warrants, which were issued by a magistrate judge in the United States District Court of North Georgia. Collected evidence included laptops, cell phones, memory cards, a modem, and stickers, a flyer, and a poster for Defend the Atlanta Forest. The search warrant alleged violation of federal statutes on destruction of motor vehicles or motor vehicle facilities, a conspiracy to commit offense or to defraud the United States, solicitation to commit a crime of violence, transfer of explosives, knowing or believing it will be used to commit a crime of violence, interstate domestic violence, and interstate and foreign travel or transportation in aid of racketeering enterprises. Police did not announce any charges related to these statutes. A media contact from within the movement against Cop City stated, quote, These raids are an escalation at the federal level and an attack on the movement to disappear dissenters against Cop City. Unquote. Residents of one of the houses searched by police say the FBI busted down a side door and called for everyone to come outside, where they were put into flex cuffs, placed into police vehicles, and eventually photographed by GBI agents. All residents and guests of the home were allowed to leave on their own power. A press release sent out by representatives of the Stop Cop City movement said that one officer found a nude photograph of a resident of another house, which was then displayed to other officers. Another individual who was not arrested reported that police dragged them by their hair while executing the search warrant. Representatives from the Atlanta Solidarity Fund told press they planned to post bail for Missouri when possible. Activists held a press conference at 5 p.m. on Thursday at 191 Peachtree Street, where the Atlanta Police Foundation is headquartered. The APF is the nonprofit entity the city is using to build the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, called Cop City by opponents. Many of the acts of arson that occurred over the last few months 
were directed at companies contracted to construct the training center, which is the subject of a multi-year protest movement. The arsons are just one of the tools amongst a diversity of tactics used by opponents of the training center. Since 2021, activists have provided dozens of hours of public comment in front of the Atlanta City Council, held teach-ins and learning sessions, and engaged in acts of civil disobedience. The Stop Cop City Vote Coalition said that it collected over 116,000 signatures on a petition for a referendum question that would allow voters to decide the fate of the facility. Despite turning in the referendum signatures in September, the city has yet to begin the process of validating those signatures and has spent over $1.2 million in legal fees fighting the referendum and other legal challenges in federal courts. We'll continue to update you on Mazurik's situation as it unfolds. And now we return to our conversation with the recently exonerated Leon Benson. He talks about the surreal feeling of being arrested for a crime he didn't commit and the government's frequent use of criminal informants to target people like him. At the time before we came in, I was drinking some Remy and I had like several blunts and I was kind of toasted. So I, I, I fell asleep. I did remember that I broke my pager because I didn't want my pager going off while I was in there and they potentially can trace uh, some of my dealings. And I was awakened, like, I don't know how long from when I was in a stupor, but I was awakened by a homicide detective by the name of Alan Jones. And he said that I'm a suspect in a murder. Like, this was laughable to me. I was, oh my God, like, stop. He said, these people said they seen you do it. I'm like, oh, they, 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 they bull crap. And this is bullshit. And I thought that they were trying to uh, uh, angle at me for my drug activity because I never sold drugs on a corner. I always did it behind closed doors. I'm thinking like, if y'all got some marked money, I'm like, say something like, what's going on? Y'all talking about a murder, y'all playing, you know? So a bad move on my part, I gave uh, the detectives a statement. Because I was being honest. I was like, what I got to lose? I was innocent. I was in the the little Vietnam. But I couldn't be pacific because I never thought like this stuff would come back. So I was like, I was in the back of the building. And I did omit that I was selling drugs. But who cares if I was selling drugs? I didn't murder nobody. This was my thinking. So I was I, I told them where I was at. I named names and and I named apartment numbers of people that seen me. I was in this place literally like for hours all through the day. But what I didn't factor in that people in the residence probably was like, I'm not talking to the police because it, it endangered me. I don't know what to say, this and that. So they just like, I didn't see him. He wasn't there. Or the detective just plain didn't interview certain people. Uh, long story short, in that particular interrogation at the end, he placed me under arrest for murder. And I laughed at him. I'm like, man, stop, man. Come on, man. And then the detective, in a, in a very hostile way, had his officers strip me of my street clothes, which is something that's unprecedented. This is seven days later from the crime. I had a, some brand new Air Max 96s on with the bubble at the bottom, you know, and I had some Pelly Pale pants on, jogging pants at the time. And he took me out of these things and threw on through uh 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 dress me in a in the orange jumpsuit, you know, really like, you know, against my will. And he really pissed me off. And he left me to walk 
through the county jail for weeks because I had to wait in a holding session before I went to the actual county jail where I'd be held for trial. So I was like in the county jail for like two weeks with no shoes, no flip-flops, nothing. He did this on purpose to humiliate me. So my response was to him, I was like, man, you know, man, your mama going to be sorry, man. You you do me like this. You know, I was just young and stupid and I was angry. This is what I said. And I say this to say, I don't know if that was part of the reason why these things started to, to set in place. So one thing I want to tell your listeners, uh, for me, it's, 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 it's two things here. Uh, you know, Indianapolis was historically, you know, a white ran city, uh, uh, upper class, uh, upper middle class, you know, white city. Uh, it didn't have no uh, particular history of 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 struggle like uh, a lot of the other cities. These black belt communities, these rust belt communities. Pardon me, rust belt communities are communities that were made out of the vacuum of major factories like GM or some major manufacturer in the city and they and they took flight from that particular city and it made a void of crime of unemployment of of this thing because they left hence you know it created a, a pool for people to be fed into the prison industrial complex so this is a big part of mass incarceration so the thing about indianapolis at the time it didn't have that thing Detroit represented something different to somebody like Alan Jones who was an older guy at the time an older homicide detective at that time he had been on the force in 1998 for 27 years so I'm not saying that Detective Jones is outright racist but from my case and from how I was treated I can honestly and fairly say he suffered from implicit bias, at least, you know, at least, you know. So with me donning the nickname Detroit, I didn't know that it came with, in my observation, unforgivable blackness. So first, you already know the Great Migration in the in the early 20th century of Black sharecroppers from the South going into Detroit and these Chicago areas, you know, to set up shop. And at that time, Detroit was like the hub for Black excellence. And, you know, it was frowned upon by, you know, uh, races, you know, white people at that time. And, and you know, it was a whole different feel to be black it was empowering to be black and you know the rust belt community part that really was made in 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 detroit and flint as well was the white flight of gm you know this occurred during the 19 1967 and it was because of br police brutality you know the city went up they got to burning down these businesses so white flight took place you know, namely a lot of the factory jobs and things like that, that left a void and it it allowed other, you know, communities to come in place to, to fill that void, you know, the best way they could. And most of that void got filled through crime, things like that. So it, it really 
help proliferate, you know, mass incarceration in Michigan. You know, Michigan got like, you know, uh like 50,000 uh, you know, inmates today. Uh in over uh like 40 prisons here in the state of Michigan, you know, all over. You know, it's one of the highest uh volume of incarceration in the states in the United States. Uh, so I didn't know all these things was going on. And I felt like because the victim was white, it, it was a, a a moral panic that took place. A thing that we need to understand statistically, cross-race crime is, 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 is low, meaning black on white or white on Latin or Latin on black. That's that's the scarcity, you know, in criminology statistically. So when when you got a a, a white victim and a so-called black perpetrator, it becomes more of a moral panic, you know, the politicians to the police, things like that. The implicit bias start, you know, this uh, Salem witch hunt mentality or the Inquisition mentality, you know, starts to take place by these officials. And it makes it more ripe for official misconduct in this capacity. And I believe that this is what set the tone, you know, for me, even though uh, it was a lot of evidence, overwhelming evidence pointing at somebody else. But to add to the eyewitnesses, the so-called eyewitnesses, uh, Donald Brooks, he give a statement August 15th, a day after uh, that I gave a statement that I was in Little Vietnam. And he made the statement that, hey, uh, it was me and, and another gentleman and other people standing out on the corner tonight by the victim's truck. And he laid down. He was in the window of the St. Regis, uh, Regis apartment. And he laid down, he seen me, then he heard shots, then he got up and he claimed he seen me walking east across the street of Pennsylvania going towards the little Vietnam building. Now, what's odd is there was an eyewitness by the name of Christy Smith. She was a white woman. She was a Star News delivery woman. And she was servicing her newspaper vending box, which happened to be 147 feet away from the end of Shane's truck, the victim's truck. And she said that she was in the middle of loading her her uh, newspapers and she heard uh, gunshots and she looked up, you know, to her left and she seen uh, an individual wearing all black with jogging pants with white stripes, like some Adidas pants, some Adidas pants, and walking, just clearing the gate of the truck of the victim, and then turn back around and shoot two more times in the cab of the truck, and then take off running through the Damien Center parking lot on Pennsylvania, which is like, at best, 15 feet away from the truck going to the to the right side going west and uh 
That's what she said she's saying. And she got in her car, tried to call 911. She couldn't get through. Well, her van, rather. She was parked close to the vending machine, which made sense because she was loading the vending machine. Then she got in her van and she drove past driving south. Pennsylvania is a one-way. South, you know, in Indianapolis. So she drove south passing the victim's truck passing a parking lot where she initially said that she's seen a lot of individuals in the parking lot. She passed that, finally got to the 911 dispatch, came back and, you know, waited for police. It was another woman there by the name of Shirley King who came out the St. Regis building and they waited on the police to arrive. And, you know, they found Casey Shane slump in his, uh, in his truck. And she gave, uh, the police uh, a statement and she said that the person she seen, you know, had black t-shirt, black jogging pants with white stripes, dark shoes, uh, had a, uh, uh, no facial hair that he was dark skinned. He was a dark skinned, you know, African-American male. And, you know, that was, you know, the premise of my arrest as well as the premise of my overall eventual wrongful incarceration because of these issues both the panic and the implicit bias and you know dynamics in indy it seems like the authorities were eager to overlook someone that i read in that university of michigan article was eventually a uh paid informant. And so I was wondering if you could talk about Joseph Webster and the sort of circumstances of how you got focused on and not someone who ended up working for the police. Oh, yeah, that's, you know, for me, for me, uh, 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 I want, I want to say this, you know, my trials, you know, I went to trial. I had two trials. It was a hung jury the first time. Because the mere mention of another eyewitness in the case by the name of Ducardi Fulton, who, who said they seen the individual that you just spoke of uh, commit the crime. And the second trial, it was it was, it, it went away. It was a runaway, a, 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 a landslide for the state because my attorney, Timothy Miller, he he was. You know, he done what he could do, but the state overwhelmed everything. We couldn't, we didn't find Dakari Fault, even though he was in the custody of the state the whole time. But nobody could find him. He, he was in the custody of the state at Riverside Work Release, ironically, right down the street from the crime. So all these things happened. Uh, I believe because of what I explained earlier, the the Detroit connection the outsider connection they would feel like i had more uh a vindictive vein to do something to somebody in the white community i'm speculating uh because it was overwhelming evidence to this this other suspect the one that you mentioned and overwhelming overwhelming and this person is suspected to be an informant as early as the 90s and doing a part of this case. He was a CI on some things he suspected. But later on, 
in the case, it was found out that, you know, he had become a confidential informant in uh, 2017, specifically on a, a, a huge high profile case in Indianapolis, Indiana, you know, against uh, Ricky Grundy, uh, a.k.a. the Grundy gang, you know, and this guy got caught. Uh, 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 the informant in here got caught with a whole bunch of drugs and, and flipped. And he he was in a, a operation in the federal government called uh, Operation Electric Avenue. You hear me? Big, big informant. You know, uh, it makes me think about the Fred Hampton situation. But and, and by no means am I comparing myself to Fred Hampton and all the great work that the Honorable Fred Hampton done, you know, in the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers. In no way am I doing that because I was lost. However, uh, we do know that that a lot of the so-called drug dealers and leaders of the community, we were already up on the Cointel Pro. So the drugs in the community, they didn't come. I didn't bring no drugs in the community. Somebody else did to try to subdue the rise of the next black messiah as J. Eckert Hoover, you know, the uh, uh, director of the, the FBI at the time of uh, the, the 60s and 70s, you know, this Cointel Pro or counterintelligence program, it had been implemented. I have been a victim of it. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not comparing myself to Fred Hampton and all the great stuff that that young brother was doing, you know, in this time, because he was helping out the people. He was bringing together gangs and stuff like that. Uh, however, it was a, a person that was an agent provocateur named uh, William O'Neill. William O'Neill, he acted like he was a Panther and, you know, he infiltrated the Panthers and, he was instrumental. He got caught with something and he was a confidential informant, you know, as well. And he set Fred Hampton up to be murdered. You know, thank, thank the universe, you know, thank, you know, the most high that, you know, at least, you know, his son, Fred Hampton Jr. survived. Uh, but it was very tragic. And I liken this situation of how, confidential informants are used for me like what is it i still ask myself why me why me why why leon benson though why me uh me personally i feel like the drug dealers the people in the community of this stature the lumping proletariat is a big pulse to this system if the drug dealer it's a movie that's out called uh, Cloning Tyrone. And I implore, you know, everybody to watch it because you got people who are being cloned in the movie, you know, played by, you know, Jamie Foxx starring in the movie uh, and several other, you know, A-list actors. But in this movie, it's four people who are being cloned repeatedly. The prostitute, the pimp, the drug dealer, and the hitter, the violent guy. So when you see these four archetypes of this community, imagine if these people say, 
you know what? I'm not going to do that no more. I'm, I'm going to do something else to help the community. Because these four individual archetypes has the most influence on that part of urban America. And it, it's been proven that it's counterintelligence programs that are enticing this behavior more than, hey, you need to go to college, more than, hey, uh, won't you take your influence and, and, and lead your people somewhere? Won't you be a politician? Oh, instead of you being the guy that's going around knocking people off and doing it, why won't you protect your community? Won't you be like a panther, you know, and protect your community and 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 serve your community that way? Why won't you be a mother and bring that nurturing to your community this other way? So I say to this effect, when we talk about the 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 real killer in this case, they have afforded immunity, right? The Indianapolis police, uh, Alan Jones. He had another confidential informant who had told a, a narcotics agent back in the 90s that he was with this, this gentleman that committed the crime and everything. He was with him, seeing it, and he wrote a letter to uh, the officer, and Detective Jones had this the whole time. He had it the whole time. But that's why I suspect that the real killer was a confidential informant back then, as he is now. He was being protected all the way through. And when you work in form, like Bill O'Neill, right, you get immunity from things. As long as you're doing the work, you know, for the agency, just like Sammy the Bull. Sammy the Bull was the biggest rat ever. But, you know, he got bodies on bodies. But the government, they give him immunity because he, he he tell on John Gotti. What's the what's the what's the justice in that? What is that telling society and telling people? That ain't that ain't right. So in this situation, it happened again with the true killer in this case. Big rat. Uh, I feel. Uh, very angry for that. You know, that fact, you know, for somebody that 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 turned into an agent provocateur. And and in the context I want to give you guys is in America, when we talking about snitching, America got treason. That's snitching. That means you snitched. You switched to the other side. You told on your family in a place where you said, hey, this is the people I'm with. So the American government, the United States of American government, treason is punishable by death. So what I'm saying is, you know, people who partake in the street life, I mean, you want to partake in the street life, you want to sell drugs, you want to kill people, but when the heat come down on you, now you want to change and you want to be an agent. And the sad part is, the, the, governor, the, the government, the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigations, they allow you to do it. So in this sense, I feel like I'm nowhere comparing myself to Fred Hampton for what he did. But I am saying me as well as 
many of poor people and people of color has the potential to rise up and lead our own community and don't need no interference from undermining government capitalist agendas. This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the show. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.